Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast features Jonathan O'Dell at Scott County's Prior Lake Library. Jonathan O'Dell's popular books draw from and explore racial divisions that continue to define his native Mississippi. His second novel, 2012's The Healing, garnered praise for its candid look at plantation life in the antebellum South and was an American Booksellers Association Indie Next pick for that year. His most recent title, Miss Hazel and the Rosa Parks League, is a story of two civil rights era mothers, one wealthy and white and the other poor and black, bound together in unexpected ways. In addition to his novels, Odell is both a short story writer and essayist and a corporate leadership coach. In the latter role, he has published a number of titles on diversity and training in the workplace. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Hello. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) Wouldn't you like one? (laughs) I was really thrilled. Uh, Marley Russoff is my agent, and uh, she's Pat Conroy's agent as well. And she took a personal hand in making this um, an accessible book, one that reaches out to you in bookstores. And I think she really did a good job. I think it's beautiful. Um, A little bit about uh, how many people have heard me speak before? And how many people have not? And how many people don't care one way or the other? <laughs> You're honest. <laughs> okay. Um, been touring a lot with this book. Uh, but just a little bit about me. I, um, I started writing late in life. I didn't start writing until I was 45 years old. I already had another career as a business consultant in Minneapolis. I worked with executives and team building and strategic planning and executive coaching and leadership until I was either going to kill them or they were going to kill me. (laughs) And seriously, I got to the point where I was 45 years old and I was successful by whatever standards that men are measured on success. I had made a lot of money and had a big house and had a partner who looked good on on our Christmas cards and I had a dog that was beautiful and, and I really wanted to die. I was really I went to a therapist and I said, you know, I don't get it. I've been sober for 25 years. I've, I've got my life together. I've done all the things I'm supposed to do, but I feel worse now than I did when I first sobered up many, many years ago. I feel like I'm on the bottom again. He said, that's because you hate what you do. And I said, what has that got to do with it? My daddy told me if you, if you find a job you only hate 95% of, you got a damn good job. <laughs> and... Uh, it's what men do. They just work and they, they hate their work and they come home and they make everybody miserable and that's what you do. And he said, no. He said, if you notice, you're not your father and uh, you don't have a family to support and 
He said, you can make up your own rules, but first you got to start do stop doing what hurts. And I said, I don't understand. He says, I don't know what else to tell you except the joy that you may have had once in your life has totally gone. And you um, have filled your life with obligation and everything hurts. So the only thing I know is to go through your life and find the things that hurt and stop doing them so that you can hear the yeses in your life. So I said, okay, my partner hurt, so we broke up. I didn't, I didn't love him, he didn't love me. We kept telling each other we were together because nobody else would have us. That looks good on a wedding cake, you know, it's really romantic. <laughs> Plus he looked a lot like my mother, and it was kind of like, <laughs> that, should have, that should have told me something that I was repeating somebody else's life and it wasn't mine. And, uh, and, so, and the house hurt because it, it was beautiful, but it wasn't big enough. And I came home and it had to be taken care of and the dog had to be fed and the dog hurt. I just, so I just broke up with my partner. I sold the house. I shut down my business and even gave away the dog. Because when you're depressed, everything hurts. It's just there's no joy in any of it. And what was very strange was the more I gave away, the better I felt, which was a lie that I had been told that stuff makes you happy. But So I moved into a one-room apartment and I was more joyful than I'd been since I was five years old. I actually love getting up in the morning. So I said, boy, this ther therapist is worth his money. So I went back to him and I said, now tell me what to do. And he says, he says, my guess is you didn't want to be doing this kind of life when you were five years old or consulting in business. And I said, oh, what did I want to be doing? And he said, well, I'm your, I'm your therapist, not your psychic. I have no idea. <laughs> but the only way I know how to find that voice is to go against everything that you've learned Drop all of your five-year plans because you planned all the delight. I never forget that. He said, you planned all the delight out of your life. There's no room for surprise. There's no room for joy. It's all been nailed down. And uh, he said, I think what you need to do is travel. I said, great. I'll go to London. I'll go to Scotland, Ireland. I'll trace down my people and take a friend with me. He says, no, you don't understand. He said, uh, go to a place you don't speak the language and go by yourself and don't go on a tour. And that way you eventually are gonna have to ask for help and that's something you haven't done for years. And he's right, before I would attempt anything, my dad always told me, never do anything that makes you look foolish. So I would never try anything for the first time. Even when I wanted to play golf, I read six books about playing golf before I went on the golf course to get it all nailed down. And he says, you're going to have to surrender. And the only way I know how to do that is to ask people for help. So I went to the jungles for three months in Costa Rica and bummed around and asked directions every morning. What's the next thing to see? And I was understood and embraced. And by the end of the summer, by the end of that three months, I was, I was in a, uh, I was in a uh, jungle in South Costa Rica. And the howler monkeys were going off. And I went, oh, my God, I want to write a book. And that was true. It was up and down. I knew I always did. Even when I was 12 years old, I wanted to write a book about Mississippi. But I always thought that was a silly thing to do. But this was the first time when the, when the memory and the excitement caught up with each other. And I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. So at 45, I went back home to Minnesota. And I learned how to write. Mainly learned how to write by writing a book. I was really fortunate. I took some courses at the loft and found a really good teacher, Mary Gardner, who was a published novelist. She, uh, we got the book in shape and it was published in 2004 under the title, The View from Delphi. And it was a story about my love-hate relationship with the South. It did, uh, 
Macadam Cage was the publisher. They're kind of an elite publisher. They were an elite publisher on the West Coast. Didn't have any marketing money. Plus, they were having their first big mega hit, which was Time Traveler's Wife. So it sucked all the marketing money out. And so my book was kind of thrown out there. But God bless Minnesotans. Somehow Minnesotans discovered it. It was uh, Talking Volumes. as Carrie Miller's first book that she chose for Talking Volumes. Uh, right, if you probably remember Catherine Lanford, she had just left and, and, uh, and it became a, a book club phenomenon, kind of underground. And plus it did really well in Mississippi because my mother made everybody read it. <laughs> and it got me far enough, it went to paperback, uh, it got me far enough to get the second book published and actually got an agent on this one, got Marley Russoff. She really loved the healing and the healing I ran into a lot of interesting people when I started researching my first book. Uh, some of these were preachers and sharecroppers, mostly African-Americans, who I'd asked to tell me their stories because I didn't learn their stories growing up, and I didn't learn about their heroism. It was all cloaked in the white narrative. And there was a group of women who I could not explain, and they were African-American midwives. And as a white boy, I was taught that these midwives were granny doctors, they were dirty, they were abortionists, they were superstitious. And I found out the opposite was true. I go into black communities and these women were saints. They held entire communities together. They didn't birth babies, they birthed communities, they birthed the people. And I, in fact, the white doctors had to play dirty, pretty uh, um, dirty ball to get rid of them because when the white doctors finally got the money to tend to black bodies, when money was being put into public health systems, they had to get rid of the midwife because the African-Americans did not want to leave their midwives. So they wrote articles in the AMA about uh, talking about how dirty they were and how they were a barrier to modern day science. The uh, state legislatures started passing licensure laws so that these, most of these women couldn't read. So the, the law said they had to read, so it pushed these women out. And then about 20 years later, after they got rid of most of them, they did studies, in the, again, in the AMA, and they found out that these, these African-American women, their live birth rate was three times higher than the white doctors who took over. And you gotta realize, of course, that's the power of knowing your community. <laughs> that's the power of knowing your people. If they were birthing this baby, they probably birthed that baby's mother and their grandmother. They knew any hereditary genetic diseases. They went to the homes well before the birth date to make sure there was food and there was clothing and stayed after to make sure the mother could mother. So of course, the, and so I, that, that book became The Healing. And it did really well. Marley sold it to uh, Nan uh, Talese at, at, um, at Random House, Doubleday. And it did so well that um, Marley found out that I had the rights to the first book revert back to me, uh, The View from Delphi. She said, I want to read that. So she, I sent it to her and she called up and she says, oh my God, I'm so mad. And I said, why, Marley? She said, this is so much better than the help. <laughs> I, went, I went, oh, I said, tell me more, tell me more, you know. Because <laughs> I knew it was. And plus it was six years before I'd, I'd love one reviewer said, if you, if you like the help, you will love the, <laughs> you, you, you will love Miss Hazel. If you hated the help, you will really love Miss Hazel. <laughs> so uh, she said, no, what I like about what you've done is the way that you've 
your African-American women characters, because these are more in line with what she understood as the true story of the South and the civil rights period. And then it wasn't white college students who came down to save black people, and it wasn't even the men, the Martin Luther Kings and the Ralph Abernathy's, it was the women. It was the women who were the most powerful because they could go where black men could not go. They were the, truly the invisible of the invisible and they could go into white homes and gather information. I, I interviewed one uh, maid in Mississippi whose, whose employer was a Klan member, a leader of the Klan. I said, how could you do that? How could you morally work for someone like that? Oh, he said, she said honey, you don't know how it, how it was down here. And she says, you know, he never knew who I was. He saw in me what he wanted to see, and I reflected back to him what he wanted to see. But you know, as soon as he started talking about those attacks the Klan was gonna make on the civil rights workers and the freedom, I'd go to my people and I'd tell them about that and then we'd tell them to watch out. So that these people, these women, had a, their own KGB network <laughs> in Mississippi especially. They, they bonded together and then when the African-American preachers, the men came in, they kind of stood on these shoulders. These women had already organized and she says, that's what I like about your book. This doesn't bow to that stereotype of the black mammy who's all loving and all forgiving. And, and you've heard white people, especially from the South, say, oh, we can't be racist because we had Dorothy. We had, like they owned her. We had Dorothy like for 30 years. She was like a family member. You know, she was just like one of our family. And she loved us as much as she, as she did her own children. And I said, really, what was her last name? Well, I don't know what her last name was. And where did she live? Well, I never went to her house. And how many kids did she have? Well, I don't know. What did, who took care of her kids while she was being so lovingly taken care? Well, they don't even know who this person was. So um, she said, that's why we have to get this book out. And she also said, we need to change the name. The View from Delphi, nobody could remember the name. They go to bookstores and they'd ask for this Delphi book. and. And of course, the this, this person in the bookstore would send them to the travel section in Greece. <laughs> and the cover, I saw one of the covers, I had to hold up the cover, there you go. It looks like William Faulkner started a forest fire. <laughs> you know, it looks like this muscular, uh, violent, bloodletting book. And it's not, it's a story about two women. And that didn't come across in the title, it didn't come across in the marketing. They sold it like, I was the next William Faulkner, and I'm not. I'm more like a Pat Conroy. I like the emotions. I go for the what. In fact, if you saw the blurb on the front cover, I called my mother, and I said, Pat Conroy gave me a blurb. And I read it to her, and she started crying because she loves Pat Conroy, too. So I called Marley, and I said, Marley, this is what happened. I read it to my mama, and she started crying. She said, I got to call Pat and tell him that. So she calls back 10 minutes and she said, you know what Pat said? And I said, what? He said, I, good, I love making women cry. <laughs> and that's the way I write. I know I haven't finished a chapter well until I'm sobbing. I go for the feelings. So I write for women and I write for men who aren't afraid of their feelings. And I'm not ashamed of that. I'm, I don't go for the minimalist approach where it's very analytical and distant. It, I go for sentimentality if it's called for. So. Um, she said, we need to market that way. And um, my husband came up with a title. He said, why don't you call it Miss Rosa and the Hazel Parks League? Because the maids in the book 
a la Rosa Parks, form their own association. And they are a team of women who decide they're not going to take it anymore. They're going to use whatever power that they can find and, and subvert white power. So we put that in the title. Also, I did some rewriting. If you've read, how many people have read The View from Delphi? Several of you. The people who read uh, both books usually tell me they don't notice a lot of difference, which is really good. But there is a lot of difference in that in the first book, I didn't, when I was learning how to write, I didn't understand how to be flexible with time. I'm an I'm a oldest kid, firstborn, so I'm very chronological, A, B, C, D, very linear. So I knew it was important to know these two women's history for the reader to know. So what I ended up doing was doing it chronologically with their childhoods. And that book is 500 pages long, and they don't, the two major characters don't meet until page 225. And if you know the book is about two women, and you're reading and reading and reading, <laughs> when, when the hell are they going to meet, you know? And it was, again, it was, my, it was my husband who said, you know, John, he does a lot on, on, on stage, and he said, you, the, the characters don't have to actually meet to meet in the reader's mind. You can put them on the same ground. They can be seeing each other. They can be having thoughts about each other. So in the reader's mind, they're already getting this relationship going and they're barreling toward this eventually meeting date. But they don't, so I was able to write it more efficiently and effectively and lose 100 pages. It's amazing what you can, that's something else I learned about writing is that it's just as important what you leave out as what you put in. Because what you leave out, that's inviting the reader to come in and participate. And I was a consultant for so many years, and my job was to talk the tension out of a room to make sure these, these white straight guys who were all uptight anyway, I had to calm them down with firm explanations. And it, unfortunately, that's deadly as a writer. You want the tension. You want the empty spaces. You just need to know which ones. So the, the book came out. Um, how many writers do we have in the room tonight? Great. You're good. I was hoping you would raise your hand. What's your name? Uh, Gina. Gina. Good. I'm going to save you some time. <laughs> okay, a, a couple of things. One is, one is, never be good at what you hate. Because people will pay you more and more to do it. The better and better you do it, the more and more you'll have to do it and be harder and harder to quit. So if you have to do something you hate, do it really badly. <laughs> so you'll keep getting fired. And that way you'll, you'll, you'll save all that energy for what you love. The other thing is they're going to tell you, write what you know. Just don't listen to them. Don't write what you know. Because what you know is boring because you already know it. And you've read writers... And you, it's like, okay, they've got an agenda. I know where they're going. It's, and, the, and, and the writer doesn't leave room for you to be surprised. It's just, the truth is, when you're reading a writer that you like and you're surprised, they were surprised too when they wrote it. If they were delighted, they were delighted at the same time. So don't write what you know. Write what you want to know. Write what you are hungry to know. Think about, for me, it takes me five years to write a book. So I have to ask myself, who do I want to be when that five years is up? How do I want to grow? And for me to write this first book, which is the, uh, the, the uh, third book, Reincarnate, I wanted to know two things. One was, how did my family get to be as crazy as they were? <laughs> Particularly my mother, 
who is the queen of crazy. <laughs> and uh, the second one was, how did we make an entire race of people disappear? How did, how did you do that? I know we know about the, the formalities of segregation, the segregation laws and the, and the lynchings and et cetera, but I was more curious on a subtle phase, how do you get a five or six year old kid like I was who goes to church every Sunday and believes in gentle Jesus Christ and the equality of, you know, what was he, are, he is equal, we are equal in his sight, yellow, red, or black and white. How do you train a kid like that to be racist and it not raise up any red flags? How do you do that in a society? How do you raise a group of people to not see an entire other group of people and yet not turn them into mean, evil beings? I was a sweet little kid, and yet I was a white supremacist. I was a racist. So I wanted to find that out. I wanted to, just the mechanisms of doing that. So those were the two things. With my mother, um, so I had two major characters in the book. The book is about two women. One is Hazel and one is Vida. Hazel is the white woman. She, uh, she grew up very, very poor, and her goal is to get off that farm and to have a new life. In the 1930s, 1940s, there was no way. If, if, a, if a farm girl was born on a farm in the 1930s, she was destined to die a farm wife, all used up with probably 12 or 13 kids. There was just much choice about it. Uh, but my mother jumped out. She got out because the only way she knew, and that was to make yourself pretty enough to find a man who would get you out. So that was also Miss Hazel. Uh, she's willful. And she's strong, and her husband takes her to a level of prosperity she had never even imagined, because he's a real hard worker, like my father was. He came from dirt, but and it was a lot easier for a man to remake himself in Mississippi. He could come from poor, poor stock, make a lot of money, and be thrown into the higher echelons of society. But a woman, they'll never let you forget where you come from. No matter how rich you get, if you are white trash in your background, You'll always be looked down upon. <clears throat> you just never quite fit. You don't have that gene, which was like my mom too. I saw her tortured through that in the 1950s when she had no outlet for her creativity. The only role she was given was to be a mother, to be a housewife. And frankly, I don't think she wanted to be either. She wanted something else that she couldn't even name because there was no name for it. So, and the other woman was uh, Vida. This was, uh, this was the maid in the book. And this, uh, I did have a maid, we did have a maid when I was growing up. And don't get your handkerchiefs out. This isn't one of those help stories where we just love our, our Viola. This is, uh, this maid's name was Alma and she hated me as much as I hated her. <laughs> just hated this woman. But I had a friend, an African-American, I told him I was writing a book on race and he said, oh great, exactly what we need, another book on race written by a white man. Wonder what you're gonna say different. And, they, and I say, well, you know, I really, I don't wanna talk, I don't wanna have a black story, a white story, I wanna talk about that space in between us that I missed. And he says, well, he says, just don't write another To Kill a Mockingbird. I said, but I want to write another To Kill a Mockingbird. And it's won a Pulitzer Prize. It set on fire a whole generation of young white kids who read this book in the North and realized we can't treat people this way. They ended up being civil rights activists. He says, I'm not talking about the whites. Yeah, whites love it, but do you ever think that blacks may hate that book? I went, why would blacks hate it? I was that dense. 
He says, look at my two little girls. I don't know if you know, this was Don Samuels. Don Samuels ran for mayor of Minneapolis a couple years ago. He was a city council person. He said, look at my two little girls, Amani and Asante. And he says, they have really, really dark skin. And he says, I don't want them to read one more book that tells them that they need to be a pitiful black person and have a white person come along and save them. That's what every time you white folks read, write a book about race, it's about some benevolent white person saving the pitiful black person. He says, I, there's going to be no white person come along to save my little girls. They're going to have to save themselves. They need heroes that look like them. And he said, Johnny, we have those heroes in our history. They just don't get written up. Why don't you find some of those heroes, put them in a book, so it'll be something I can let my girls read and also show them who they can be. So I said, okay, I want, I want this, this, this is this woman. I want, to, I want to find out what this woman named Alma, why she, how did she get to be so feisty with me? How did she get to be so ornery with me? I needed, I needed to make sure I had a black person who I did not love, that it didn't turn into this, this earth mammy. <clears throat> so I put her in there. And just, uh, just a little bit about, about Vida, about Alma, uh, I decided, the reason why I hated her was not because she was black. That's how insidious racism was. I was only five years old, so I wasn't a full-fledged racist yet. I was just learning to become one. And uh, you, you, nobody sits you down and says, this is, this, whites are better, blacks are inferior. This is what you do. This is how the color code works. No, you absorb all of that. And you don't absorb it from the people you despise. You only absorb it from the people you love. That's why racism is so hard to confront. That's why a lot of white people don't want to talk about their white privilege because they, it's, it's not, not that they would have to confront the evil people in the world like the George Wallaces and the slave owner. They have to confront their own parents and their own mothers and their fathers. That's tough. And um, I learned that my father was really afraid of things going missing in the house when Alma was there. I didn't know about race. I didn't, I knew how, to, so I knew how to use the racist tools. So what I would do, I would steal things, bury them, and tell my daddy that Alma had stolen them. Because I wanted her out of the house. Because my, my, I knew my mother was broken. I knew that early on. My job was to take care of my mother. I was the oldest kid. I was a little man of the family. Plus, she went and had two more kids, twins, two years younger than I. And my job was to take care of them. My job, I was always told, was to be the grown-up one and take care of that house and be the one mama depends on. And here, mother takes a job, she leaves, and this black woman shows up. So my goal is to get rid of this black woman because she keeps scaring my mama off. I need to get rid of her and bring my mama back. So I sat out to destroy this woman, not because she was black, but because she was in my way. But I used all the tools of racism, my father's prejudices that I couldn't even name, but I knew how to use them. And I knew that he was afraid of... Uh, Things going missing, he also talked about how expensive coffee was. So I would take the coffee, throw it down the drain, and tell my daddy that Alma sat around and drank coffee, just lazy, 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 sat around and drank coffee. Finally, they got rid of her, or she left, I have no idea. Mother came back to the house, probably because she got fired, I don't know. But anyway, she was gone. And after the book came out, I was sitting around in my father's, in my mother and father's house down in Mississippi, and dad, this is about, I was 55 years old, so it'd be 50 years after I had last seen Alma. And Daddy was reading through the centennial book of the county. He said, oh, here's, here's Alma. 
I said, oh, is she still alive? He said, yeah, she's living out in Sandersville. We're close to here. <gasps> I said, and, and so I've been writing enough to realize that when you use the past for the fodder for your writing, you tend to embellish things. And pretty soon my fiction feels a lot more real than the past did. So I'm wondering, you know, I probably didn't hate her that much. This is probably the imaginings of a five-year-old kid because it made a good story. But I'm going to call her up. So I called her up and I said, uh, Miss Dickinson, I said, you probably don't remember me, but uh, you took care of me as a child. She says, is this Johnny? <laughs> I went, yes, ma'am, it is. And she says, you were the devil's spawn. <laughs> she said, you were the meanest child I ever had to take care of. And she says, but your little brothers, they were sweet. How are they doing? I went, <laughs> and I said, well, uh, they're good. I said, can I come out and talk to you? I'd like to apologize for some things I did. And she said, which I'm now gathering were, were true. And she says, well, can your brothers come? <laughs> I went, no, they can't. They're not here. They're, and she said, I said, I'll bring my mother. And she said, oh, I love your mother. Bring, bring your mama on out. Miss Faye, she's okay. If you got to come, come on. <laughs> so I went, and it was the most awkward hour I spent in my life. She just, when she would look at me, she just stare a hole at me and then she talked to my mother and smile and I'm a Facebook guy so I said oh this will make this be great on Facebook so I said would you take a picture with me and she gets up and I put my arm around her and so I'm thinking this is gonna make one of those lovely here's the boy dirty discovering his life is is made from childhood and how warm that's gonna be and then look at the picture and I'm smiling like a like like a goonie goat and there she is frowning <laughs> So as we end, we end up, and I just I just want to apologize for the coffee and for uh, stealing things and lying about. She says that wasn't it. You don't remember what what else you did? And I said, No, ma'am, I don't. She says, and she she said you stole. No, you told your mother that as soon as she left the house, I put on her clothes and wore them around the house. How did I know to say that? How do I did I know as a five year old kid? that that would be so taboo in the South. Don't know, but I absorbed it without, without being conscious of it. I, that's how I learned to be a racist. And um, I told a friend, Michelle Goodwin, who was a law professor here, she's down in California now, uh, UC Irvine, but I was telling her, she, she's African-American, I was telling this story, and I was kind of laughing about, oh, I said, uh, I saw this, my maid, and, 50 years later, she was still mad at me, and I was kind of giggling. I kind of like, isn't that silly for her to hold this grudge? And she wasn't laughing. She said, damn it, that, you white people. She said, don't you realize that in those days, the word of a five-year-old child could have got a black woman lynched? You don't realize the power that you carried around. That, see, that's the thing about privilege. You didn't have to. You could go off like a cocked pistol and never be responsible for it. She says, I wouldn't have forgiven you either. And this is from a close friend who loved me enough to actually, it's one of those moments where you realize, oh yeah, I'm white. <laughs> yeah, I see things differently. So uh, Vida became the maid. Now, I'm going to read a little bit to you, if you don't mind me doing that. This is, um, I'm going to read you a little bit about Hazel. When I was a child, I thought my mother was the most beautiful woman in the world. And now that she's 87, I'm sure of it. She is, she's just gorgeous. Um, and she, we, we, she and I had a ceremony. I think every poor Southerner, every poor, whether they're black or white, they always have something called a picture box. 
then it could be a tin of, of old fruitcake tin or whatever, but it's got pictures in it. And these pictures date back for generations. No matter how poor they were, they could always afford somehow to have their pictures taken. And these pictures were more than just photographs. They were where you held your story, where you held your history. So I would grab a picture out of the box and say, Mama, tell me this one. And she would tell me these stories about these stern-faced people, uh, some of them with coal black hair, just like the Choctaw Indians that I saw, because they were, and, and these hordes and hordes of kids. And so there was one, I remember holding out to her, and I said, Mama, tell me this one. And I knew it was a family farm. My granny and my papa were on it. They were younger, and my, my uncles and aunts were on it. But uh, I said, Mama, why aren't you on this picture? She says, oh, I'm, I'm right here. And I went, oh, that can't be you, because that picture was of a half-starved-looking orphan girl. She had her shoulders humped like this from, she was only 12, but she'd been picking cotton since she was five that would deform the back. My granny never got rid of this hump in her back and from holding all the kids. And, <clears throat> and she had really stringy hair and she really looked emaciated. The dress was just like, it's just falling from her rack of bones. And I, just, I wanted to cry. I said, Mama, that can't be you, you're pretty. She says, well, don't cry. Let me show you another one. She pulled out another one. And this was the family picture again. She says, can you find me here? And I was, find her immediately. That's my mother with the lush auburn hair. She's sitting up, standing up like this. And my mother likes to test her good looks to make sure they're real. So she's always kind of teasing and flirting. And even in this picture, at 15 years old, three years later, she's got a finger in her mouth like this. And whoever's taking that picture, she's flirting with, I can tell. I said, well, Mama, what happened? Well, she said, I just decided I wasn't going to be ugly no more. Just like that, she decided it wasn't going to be ugly. And she said, I stole eggs from, from Granny's sitting hens and got whipped for it, but I had to have something to wash my hair with. And she said, I sent off in the back of the, of the comic books for, uh, for freckle cream remover. I got that, and she said, uh, and, the, and there was only one, one other person that I knew that had makeup because it was, it was a sin amongst us Baptists. So I, I bribed the, uh, the undertaker to let me have some lipstick and cream. And she said, but in the, the back was the hardest. She says, but Papa had thrown away this old mule harness, these reins. And so I made myself a harness that forced my shoulders back. And she said, it cut in my back and made me bleed, but I didn't care. I got those shoulders up there. And she said, ain't I pretty? I said, you're more than pretty. My God, you learn you, this beauty is not a superficial strategy. This is a strategy to get out. This wasn't something about vanity. This was a last hope for something inside her not to die. So uh, that, this, that's how I found the character. And I, this is the story that I tell about Hazel, Hazel on the farm. Hazel had been 12 years old when the slick-haired, sugar-talking man arrived one hot summer afternoon with the mysterious black box he swore would show her to be as pretty as anybody in the movies. Up until then, she had never seen a photograph of herself. While he set up his camera and posed each one of her brothers and sisters, she flirted with him, tossing back her hair and licking her lips the way she had seen Jean Harlow do. Standing out in the yard as the man took her picture, she felt her skin burn at the thought of escaping the Tom Bigby Hills. Her mother ne had, ne had never any patience for this full-of-feelings girl. Each time Hazel asked if the pictures had arrived, she warned her about getting her hopes up. Hope does the plowing in misery's field, her mother said. But the delicious anticipation of things hoped for had to be the best sensation Hazel knew of. 
She didn't know how she could live without thinking something good was about to happen, not in the sweet by and by, but tomorrow, if not today. When the photographs finally arrived two months later, her hands trembled as she opened the envelope. The first was of her mama and daddy sitting stiffly next to each other, the way strangers share a bench at the dentist's office. The next was of her daddy with his arm around his mule's neck. How much more at ease he appeared posing with a plow mule. <laughs> Finally, she came to the family portrait, 12 of them in front of the paintless barn. On one end was her daddy in his white starched shirt and overalls, and on the other end was her mama, tired and worn, holding baby Jewel. Bunched between them was the brood of wooden-faced children, not a size missing between knee-high and full-grown, with two spaces left empty for the boys still off to war in the Pacific. Something wasn't right. Hazel touched her finger to each face in the picture. She could identify her brothers and sisters, yet her own face was missing. Had the camera skipped over her? <gasps> no, she gasped. That photographer had played an awful trick on Hazel. In her place, he had put a half-starved orphan, neglected and bound to die soon. The poor little girl was stoop-shouldered and had the hair, the texture of broom straw. A dingy hand-me-down dress swallowed the rail-thin body. The, first, the face was gaunt and hollow-eyed. She had the haggard look of a woman of 50, not a girl of 12. Hazel's shock gave way to tears. It was no trick. She should have known. Her older sisters had told her often enough. Hazel Ishi was as homely as a wart-headed chicken. No fancy man with a magic black box or a head full of hope was going to change that fact of life. Hazel told herself that her mother had been right. She was a fool to hope. She tried resigning herself to her ugliness, taking to her fate like a Christian martyr. As her mother had done, she would become the wife of some man who didn't care how she looked and who was more flattered at having his picture taken with a mule than with her. She would have a brood of children each year pushing the last baby off out of her lap to make room for the next. Her older sister, the prettiest one, had little patience for Hazel sulking. What's the matter with you, Honorine asked as she poured a bucket of water into the horse trough. I'm ugly, Hazel snapped. Ain't you noticed? Her sister's face softened to pity. You know, Hazel, having beauty to lose is much worse a burden than never having it to begin with. God was looking out for you by making you plain. Hazel's mouth dropped. You saying he did it on purpose? You saying me being homely is God's will? That's right, Hazel. Take it as a blessing. Hazel pushed Honorine into the horse trough. <laughs> then and there, Hazel decided to come down a whole hog on the side of hope. She was going to be pretty if it killed her. <laughs> so, thank you. Um, and then Hazel does get to be pretty, and she does find a man to take her off of the farm, and they build up a very successful, monetarily a successful life together, have a big, beautiful house in a little town in Mississippi that I named Delphi, which is actually Carrollton, Mississippi. It's a beautiful little pre-war, when we say war in the South, we mean that war, <laughs> the Civil War, antebellum town, sitting in all painted white, like a white, like a powdered lady overlooking the flat, flat delta expanse. And they have one of the biggest houses there. And Hazel has two, child, two, two children, one Johnny and the other Davy, and Davy dies. And um, she takes that as her own fault. 
So now she feels like she's failing at being a mother, being a wife, being a housekeeper. Only thing she could do is drive. And she loves to drive like my mother does. She's, she's not, never without her Lincoln. And uh, that's about what's left for her. And unfortunately, she loves to drive and drink. And unfortunately, she likes to do both those things at the same time. Um, this is a scene from One Christmas Eve after they moved into Delphi and Davy has, uh, has died. And Johnny is about five. As he did during most of his parents' fights, Johnny retreated to his and Davy's secret hiding place in the dark behind the couch. Besides letting him overhear his parents, the positions offered an excellent view of the tree. The motorized wheel of tinted cellophane rotated before a bare bulb, turning the aluminum tree from red to blue to green and back to red again. Tomorrow, his mother and father, they, they would have to feel better. Surely Davy wouldn't miss Christmas. His parents continued the argument that had begun over supper. As usual, his father had been complaining about Hazel's drinking and driving. Hazel said it wasn't a family secret, and Floyd said it wasn't a family secret anymore. He claimed Hazel was on her way to becoming a legend across the county, bigger than even that colored girl over in Montgomery that had to drag off the bus. On several occasions, the sheriff had personally driven Hazel and Johnny home, leaving the Lincoln behind, straddling ditches or sunk deep in muddy fields. A few weeks after Davy's funeral, she had run a school bus off the road. Floyd said Hayes Alcorn had made a, he's the mayor, made a joke about it in the city council meeting. He cracked that instead of spending money on a siren for when the Russians attack, Delphi should have an early warning system for when Hazel pulled out of her driveway. <laughs> Johnny then heard his father say something about his mother trying harder. Maybe go see the pastor, he suggested. Hazel had exploded. That jack-legged preacher, he told me Jesus took my son to teach me a lesson. Said Jesus did it because he loved me. Well, maybe there's some truth in it, Hazel. Maybe on the upside, he can make you a better mother if you... That's when Johnny heard the back door slam. Even he knew not to bring up Jesus around his mother. When he ventured into the kitchen, he found his father sitting at the table studying his hands. Where's Mama? Floyd looked up with weary eyes, out driving. The house went graveyard quiet. Floyd sat at the table, casting about for a plan to save his business from his wife, and Johnny fell asleep worrying about the whereabouts of both Santa Claus and his mother. A little past 1 a.m., Floyd grabbed the phone after the first ring. It was the sheriff. It seemed that Hazel had driven through his yard, smashed into Hertha's life-size nativity scene, and sent one of the sheep crashing through her parlor room window. Hazel had come to a stop in a clump of Nandina bushes. The sheriff sounded groggy. I think she's okay, a little too much, well, driving. She must have really put on some miles tonight. When Floyd said he would be right over to get his wife, the sheriff told him not to bother. Everything's under control, he assured him. I'm getting some black coffee down your wife and a sleeping pill down mine. Didn't even wake the girls. I'll carry Hazel over directly. Floyd was waiting in the doorway when the sheriff led Hazel up the walk, his arm around her waist, pulling her tightly to him for balance. Lost in the aroma of cigarettes and Old Spice, she was disappointed when the porch steps came into focus. She could have strolled with him all the way down the bluffs and clear out into the Delta night. Hazel, are you all right? Hazel took over from the sheriff, but his handling wasn't as gentle. 
After he got her in the house, he grabbed Hazel by the shoulders and shook her once. You could have killed somebody. You could have hurt somebody. His eyes widened at the thought. She didn't, did she, Sheriff? She didn't hurt nobody. Nope, not that we know of. You didn't kill nobody, did you, Miss Hazel? Hazel turned and saw her friend grinning by her side, and she grinned back, only in self-defense. She winked at the sheriff, thinking he understood what she meant. He shrugged it off with a grin and said his good night. Floyd called after him as he cut through the yard. Sheriff, we're awful sorry. I'm sure she didn't mean nothing by it, since Davy and all. He stopped. She's not responsible for it right now. Hazel's face lit up. You think you know me so good, don't you? Well, I am responsible. I did it on purpose, she announced proudly. Hazel, Floyd shook her again. You still drunk as Cooter Brown. Maybe, but I still did it on purpose. When I saw that tiny baby in that manger, I knew I had to kill it. Had to get it before it grew up and made my life hell. I aimed the car right for that little crib. I think I got him. You tried to kill Jesus, Floyd said, incredulous. You can't kill Jesus, Hazel, honey. That's a simple fact. Jesus is going to live forever, whether we like it or not. Not in my house, he ain't. If he can't be nice, then out he goes. Hazel flung her arms so hard, showing Jesus the way out. She toppled over. Floyd caught her. She looked up into his face. It seemed frozen in disbelief. Didn't he understand? Everything was so clear to her now. Life could go ahead and roar past them like a freight train. She had everything under control. She had won. Only Floyd, only Hazel wished Floyd would stop staring. What was he looking at? Then she turned and peered into the mirror that hung in the entryway. There she saw a mad woman, her hair in wild tangles and long black fingers of mascara reaching for her throat. Lipstick smeared almost to her ears like a circus clown gone mad. A pair of dead eyes peered back at her from the furthest reaches of hell. This was what the sheriff had been grinning at. Floyd spoke, spoke softly, carefully. Hazel, it ain't Jesus' fault. For a long time, she stared blankly at him. When Hazel spoke, it was as a small girl. Then whose fault is it, Floyd? His eyes offered her nothing. Tell me, she asked. When is somebody going to be on my side? Without expecting an answer, she dropped her head on her husband's chest, and he led her off to bed. So that's Hazel at her lowest point. Um, and then uh, Floyd knows that he has to, unfortunately, he has a, a drunk driver as a wife, he, his business happens to be selling Lincolns <laughs> and Delphi's, so he didn't figure that was a great advertisement for his business. So he has to get somebody to mind his wife, and, 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 not, and to make her mind, as we would say in the South, but to mind her. Uh, he finds Vida, and she's a young woman, an African-American, who grew up on the sharecropping. And she has also lost a child, which Hazel doesn't know about. And these two become mortal enemies. And of course, Johnny hates her too, because just like this Johnny did, he's taking over where he should be in control. So um, there begins a domestic competition between Hazel and this strange black woman. Um, and I wondered about, I didn't know if I wanted these two to be friends. That's such a cheap cop-out with Southern novels. Is that, again, the, the narrative is 
the black woman gets in trouble, the white woman or the white person steps up and saves them, and then the black woman is really grateful and hugs her neck, and we all cry. And I didn't want that. I didn't want Vida to save Hazel. I didn't want Hazel saving Vida. I wanted two strong women. But I wanted them, I, the question was, what would it take seriously for two women in the midst of Jim Crow and the perversion of power and the dehumanization of power, but also in the 1950s when women are kept down as well, white women, what would it take for these two women to see that they have a common agenda in their life? Not that they're alike, not that they can be bosom buddies, not that Hazel will ever understand what it's like to be black in the South, but what would it take for them to see across race and say, I see something in you that is like me? And the only thing I knew of that powerful was the loss of a child. In, in my family, the only person who could understand and connect with a woman who's lost a child is another mother who's lost a child. There's something about that experience which transcends race. It is so horrible. It is so shameful. It is, it, it's, it's so deep that no man can understand. So it's these two women coming to grips with their own motherhood together in the same house. And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Jonathan O'Dell and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from a woman wondering why O'Dell left his native Mississippi to come to Minnesota. I escaped when the border guards weren't looking. It was, I was 29 years old. I had a master's degree in psychology with an emphasis in alcohol and drug abuse and a blind drunk at the same time. That's how big denial can be. I, I knew that I was gay, kinda, but I didn't know what that was. I just knew that I was different and I was gonna kill myself. I, you know, I just knew that there's no place to go. My dad was a big figure in the state, a very important man. And I knew that I had to get away to recreate myself. It was in alcoholism and, and Hazleton, they'll call this a geographical cure. Usually they don't work. You think, well, if I'll just move away, everything will be different. But it's not because your baggage shows up a few days later. But this one did work. I got to Minnesota and it was a cruel trick to play. I had no idea this was the land of 10,000 treatment centers. <laughs> so I got here and I got into business, started being successful. And I, but I was drinking, my drinking was not normal. I could tell that with the people now, that they didn't drink like I drank. And I could tell my family history was, we believe in not small steps toward tragedy, but big, starlit, big explosions, arts tragedies. Like that scene I, I read you about Hazel. Now, the truth was my mother on Christmas Eve got in her Lincoln and turned it over in the mayor's yard, not the sheriff's yard. So that's how we live our life. We, we go along, we get, we, we, we get close to success, then we just blow it up. So I could tell this was happening to me. So I got myself into treatment. Uh, and thank God I did. It was, um, and that's when I started working on my family issues. And that, I, I read a book about in 1980, about 1990 something. It was The Prince of Tides by my hero, Pat Conroy. And the reason why he's my hero, not for the writing, but I went, oh my God, he's making a fortune off writing about crazy families. I've got one of those. <laughs> so I saw my family a whole new light, not just as somebody who had tortured me, but raw material for a book. 
and that really was the way to reconciliation. I had dragged my parents up to therapy and yelled at them and screamed at them, and they always came. That's what we do in our family. We take care of our own. And, uh, and at the end of every session, they say, well, uh, we'll come up again if you could be nicer. They let me scream, which is important to get through my angry phase in my life. And then when I decided I wanted to write this book about the South, I realized I had white-knuckled it through my childhood. I did not remember anything about the South. I, I was auditory. I could, I could do voices and dialects, but I could not see pictures because I didn't have the luxury of looking at what season the cotton was blooming or what trees were out or because I was so busy looking over my shoulder because afraid somebody was going to catch me, find out that I didn't belong. So to write the book, I had to have a truce with my family. I said, let's just make an agreement. We won't talk about my childhood anymore because God knows we're never going to agree on that. But Mama, can you tell me how to make cat's head biscuits? And Daddy, can you tell me what it's like to pick cotton it's at sunrise when you still got to go to school? It's 100 degrees. What does that cotton bowl feel like to your fingers? And it was interesting, by taking them down to the tactile level, to, to the sens sensual level, or the level of the senses, all their stories came out. They, all of their, I learned this, if you ever, if you, a lot of us want to interview elderly people in our lives before they go so we can get their stories, don't ask them questions like, what was it like during World War II? What was the depression like? Because then they go to their, their left brain, their recollection, their historical rec recollection, and they just give you this boring narrative. Ask them instead, well, what did you eat on Sunday mornings? What did the kitchen smell like? What dresses did you wear when you really wanted to be pretty? What, what, what was the material? So if you can ask them to feel, like I, t I asked my mother, I was trying to understand about how my granny kept the floors as clean as she did with 12 kids in the field all day long coming in and out. <clears throat> Just those little details that I wanted to make my book real. She says, oh, we, you know, we always, in the mornings, we would have this big old wash pot outside in the yard, big old iron wash pot, and we'd have a fire under it, and we'd keep the water going, and so on, on, on washing days, we'd get a, get a bucket from there, and we'd take it inside, and we'd put the lye soap in it, and we'd mop the floors, and and I said, oh, so you brought the hot water in the house because you didn't have it. You said, yeah, we had to bring it in the house. She said, yeah, and that's what happened to your Uncle uh, uh, W.M. I said, you never told me about an Uncle W.M. He's not in any of the, who's the Uncle W? She said, oh, I never, she said, well, he, one day when I was washing the floor and we just gotten the water out of the pot, he was playing around like he used to do, play, you know, making a fool and, and tripped over the water and it spilled all over him and burned him from head to toe, scalded him and couldn't get the doctor out there. And, and daddy stayed by WM's bed for three nights in a row holding his hand, praying for God to save him. And when WM died, you know, that was the last time Papa had any use for God. So he's like, I'll, I just ask about what, but these are the stories that would come out. They're all attached in the right brain to these other memories. I have no idea what your question was. I hope the answer was good. <laughs> Obviously, I needed to say that. But uh. Our next audience member asks Odell if he can describe his faith and how that plays into his work. Yeah, it's very, I mean, that is my job is to figure out my faith. I've, ever since I was a kid, I was, I was to say, I'm always afraid I'm going to offend people, but I wrote the book. I get to say anything I want to. <laughs> Nobody can fire me anymore. So, uh, 
as a child, I always felt that I had a friendship with God. I don't know where that came from. I just felt that even before I went to church, I just felt he was my buddy. And so even as a gay person, when all the preachers were saying, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, God hates you, there was part of me that, you're, that's, that's bullshit. <laughs> God loves me. I just kind of know that. It was just, I don't know where I got that. Um, but then I did go through a phase where it became appropriate to turn your back on the church and to blame them for everything. And I did that. And I tried Far Eastern religions and tried Buddhism and, and uh, Native American religions. And I, but you really... It didn't work because eventually you got to go home again, you know, for, for whatever that's like. I think, uh, who was it, uh, Wolf, who said you could never go home again? He's only half right because you could never leave either. And whatever religion that you had, or it's not just religion, that was the language that we spoke. And I have to go back to that. So this book was a search for my way back. The different religions I've tried are in here. One is the fundamentalist, which is, you know, you you believe what, you know, what, I forget the bumper sticker. God said it, the Bible, you know, said, the Bible says it, God wrote it, and that settles it. Whatever, is that fundamentalist, that's just it. I went through that phase until that didn't work anymore. kind of left the mystery out of the whole thing. And then for a while in college, I sold books door to door to overcome a stuttering problem. I was a very shy person, and I learned pos the power of positive mental attitudes. So affirmations and saying, you know, get up in the morning at five o'clock and say, I feel happy, I feel healthy, I feel terrific. You know, winners never quit, quitters never win. That's Floyd. I put that, that's Floyd in the book. It's, it's figuring this dark side of ourselves, it's dangerous. So we have to stay in the light. We have to think positive and push all these other things besides. And that works until it doesn't. The dark side always has the last laugh. The dark side is the most powerful part of ourselves, according to Jung. That's the, that's the part that uh, we don't see. It's, um, it's the pain. It may be the grief, the loss that we refuse to deal with. And so we shove it deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper until one day it either numbs us completely or explodes. And that's where uh, I worked that out through Levi. That was... Um, it, that chap, there's a chapter in there where Levi, the preacher, is trying to explain to a six-year-old child, who is me, what God is. And it's about God is, it, it was a, it's a big light for me, which was God is not only the light, he's the darkness too. So that was my next phase of spirituality. I think Richard Rohr, the, the theologian, says everything belongs. And that's where I am now, it all belongs. It's not either or. It's not good or bad. It's not good or evil. In God's world, it all belongs, and that's the mystery. And what drew that really home for me, what enabled me to write that chapter, was that I was um, with my dad before he died in uh, <clears throat> the living room, and I'd always wondered, you know, what he... I knew that he accepted me and he loved me. They treated my partners that I brought home a lot better than me. <laughs> I just loved them. And, uh, but I would never, he never talked about me religiously. And he's a deacon in the church. He's a fundamentalist. So I finally asked him, I said, Daddy, I said, uh, do you, I'm just curious, do you worry about me going to hell? And he says, well, he says, I left one church because of all that talk about homosexuality, homosexual this, homosexual that. I just left him. We don't have to talk about that all the time, do we? Now, I didn't know he had left a church. Now, leaving a church in the South is like leaving your wife. 
And if you're a deacon, that's like shooting your wife. That is huge. He made a statement. And I said, oh, you left? He said, yeah, yeah, I just didn't, I didn't need that anymore. And I said, but you didn't answer my question. I said, do you worry about me going to hell? According to your Bible, the way that you read it, that's, he says, well, takes out his Salem and he's smoking. He says, well, he said, I do believe that the Bible, the scripture is the inerrant word of God. It's what it says. It's scripturally, that's the truth. And I just want to you know, slap him. And he puffs. And he said, I know my son and he's not evil. So I guess both them things are going to have to be true. And that's when a door opened. It was like, oh my God, he has a big God. <laughs> Bigger than my little compartmentalized. It's like, if so they kind of opened the door to the Levi story in the book. Was that everything belongs. You know, it's us that makes these discriminating decisions. And then the, the healing, which was the next book, which took... Um, it even further than that. What I was really interested in exploring the healing was how a religion, I was interested in how religion can be perverted by a master class to control the underclass. And the more I studied, I would read these old sermons that, that uh, slave preachers would give to the masters and then the, same, the sermons they would give to the slaves and how it was all perverted. And so about how we have to uh, retake back our own understanding of God. Another audience member notices that there are a few moments in Odell's works where important scenes unfold around bodies of water. Is this a conscious effort by Jonathan Odell? You're being a psychologist, aren't you? <laughs> I never thought about that, but you're right. And for me, every book that I write will have water in it. To me, water is mystical. And I just... And uh, it's, to me, how God shows himself. It's just with all these refractions and there are different levels of visibility. And, and then I really struck it rich when I w was studying a tribe in Africa called this, in the Sierra Leone, called the Timni tribe. And they are a re religion which, um, which reveres women and the whole feminine process. And they compare women to water. So all of their metaphors are about water. Like a, a woman is to see through water darkly. And, and a river never forgets its, its source. And the, in how we are all in water, I think a Greek, her, her, I forget his name, a philosopher said the same thing. You never set step in the same river twice, you know, but it's all connected. It's all connected. So, yes, water is really important to me. And that, so there'll always be a river close by for me to use my analogies and metaphors. This question inquires what Jonathan Odell is working on now. Two books. Um, one is stories about growing up. The stories that I just told you tonight, because this, on the last three book tours with the different books, that's what I end up talking about mostly is stories about my mother, much to her horror, <laughs> and my father and my brothers, and growing up gay in the South. And I've got a name for it. Marley won't let me name it this, but it's my working title because it has the mood that I want to strike. It's called Growing Up Gay, Fundamentalist, and Southern Baptist in Mississippi, or God, What Were You Thinking? <laughs> so it's the... Uh, I don't want it to be a beat up, you know, here's my coming out story and almost, I mean, this part of it's tragic, but also you got to look at it with a sense of humor. There's absurdity. When you're talking about gay, when you're talking about color 
it's 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 insane how we dis distinguish between people. So that's what I want to write about. I've got a third novel that I've got about 100 pages into, and it's called The Last Safe Place. It'll take place in the same county as the other books do, the fictional county of Hopalachia County. Our last question of the night comes from a woman wondering what Odell's mother thinks of his work. Be my last story, but I'm so glad you asked. Let me, let me tell you. Um, the first time I showed her the book, it was in a rough draft, and I wrote the book to get even with her. You know, I was just, here, I'm gonna put it all in writing, you can see what a horrible mother you were, and you'll finally give me the apology I deserve. And uh, I, I haven't named the kid Johnny so she wouldn't miss the point. This is, this is you, Mama. And I put those scenes in about the car getting wrecked and very specific things about her getting drunk and driving over my dog. I mean, it's horrible things. And I mean, I, I, had this, I had her crucify this child so badly that my writing teacher said, you know, if one more bad thing happens to this kid, I'm gonna kill him myself. He's nothing but a pen doll. So, so I took the book home, showed my mom, and Daddy said, you can't let your mom read this. Let him read it first. He said, you can't let her read it. And I said, why? Well, God, she'll be out in the Lincoln again, drunk. You know, we can't let her do this. You, so I let her have it and uh, let her have it. And gave her, so all weekend, she's pulling back to pages, pulling back to pages. And I'm, I can be strong around my mother for about 20 minutes. And then I revert to the six-year-old whose job it is to make sure she never hurts herself. So I'm codependent. I'm going, oh, what have I done to my mother? She's never going to. So I'm, we're sitting, just waiting for her to get to the end. And finally, toward the end, she starts crying. And uh, thank God I had a master's degree in counseling psychology because I said, well, Mom, it looks like you're having feelings. <laughs> and she said, she said, yes. She says, Johnny, she said, I just don't know how to tell you. I love this book. I said, you love it? She said, yes, beautiful. You really are a writer. She said, just one thing. And I said, what, Mama? She says, I only wished I could have been that little boy's mother. <laughs> like, she said, what part don't you remember? You can't be. So she never really knew until I was on TV down there on Mississippi Public Broadcasting, and somebody asked me that question on live TV, and I thought I'd be cute and answering it, not realizing she was at home watching. So she calls and she says, that book was about me? I was that woman, that mean old woman? And I said, well, Mama, I said, that's the way I saw it. Obviously, I've had enough therapy to realize there are five people in our family, so we had five different families. From what I, but maybe we can talk about some of the things, which gave us something to talk about. But now, but luckily my mother's a narcissist. That's her saving, that's what got her through a horrible childhood. I think of sexual abuse probably, but I know of physical abuse and poverty. She focused on her to get herself through. So now when somebody moves into the assisted living where she lives, she takes in the book and says, you've got to read this, it's about me. <laughs> and my agent just loves my mother because she is, this woman who survived from the 1950s, just like mothers, at least like Marley's mother. She's, there's something about these women. No matter how irregular their, 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 their stand for individuality, you gotta give it to them, they didn't give up. And um, so my agent made sure that in the book tour, we went through my mother's, where she's living, Hasburg, Mississippi, on her birthday. So we did a happy birthday mom and Miss Hazel birthday party at the bookstore 
and I gave her invitations, and she got to invite all of her friends, people from her old churches, her relatives. It was just packed. It was just beautiful. And I got to sit up front with her. She sat to my right, and I, as I did the, I mean, that she was in her glory. You know, she was on TV that morning. She, we were actually, for her first time, we went on TV. We were right at 545, right after the hog report. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> didn't matter. She spent a week on QVC getting exactly the right clothes. And she is hilarious. I mean, the, the, it, the interviewer says, well, well, John, I understand a lot of this book is inspired by your mother. And I said, yeah, there are a lot of stories in there that mom bequeathed to us. And, uh, and she, say, she looked at my mother and said, well, how do you feel about that, Miss Faye? Do you have a thing to say? She says, well, she says, my son loves to embellish. <laughs> <laughs> so she gets the last word. So thank <laughs> you. Thank you so much. Well, that's it from our Prior Lake Library event with Jonathan O'Dell in Scott County. Catch our next Club Book event with Anthony Mara at 6.30 p.m. Thursday, March 19th at the Chanhassen Public Library in Carver County. Anthony Mara's 2013 opus, A Constellation of Vital Phenomena, takes place against the backdrop of occupation and insurgency in war-torn Chechnya. NPR called it one of the most accomplished and affecting books in a very long time. Meet Anthony Mara, get your questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle at clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, the St. Paul Hotel, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.